Let's pray together. Oh, Father, that is our prayer, that you would reveal your glory through your word. God, your glory is in there. Your glory is expounded to us through your word. What you have said to us through the 66 books of your Bible are all for your glory. It reveals you to us, and it reveals our need for you through the preaching and the hearing of this word. And as we open this text together this morning, I pray that you would be with me, God, as I would seek to do that and give you glory alone for the preaching of your word. That we would all look past the speaker and to your word and to see that it is what your word is saying to us this morning. To give you more glory, more devotion, more honor, more of everything, all the worship we can give you, God. I pray we would do that now through the hearing and understanding of your word. I pray that as as we walk out of here today, the word would be dwelling richly in our hearts, that we would go about joyfully proclaiming the truths of what Christ has done for us. As we prepare to, to look at this specific section of Scripture, I pray that you would soften the hearts of any of those here this morning who have never put their trust in Christ, that you would show them Christ today in your word. You would draw out from your word the truth of Scripture that softens the hearts of sinful man. You cause them to see the truth and turn, come to Christ today. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're, we're going to finish the book of Jonah together. So if you have a Bible, if you'd like to join me in Jonah chapter 4, that is where we will look. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a few High points of what we've looked at the last few times we've been together. I know it's been a few weeks, a month since we've looked at some of these chapters. So let me just refresh your memory. We see that Jonah is a reluctant prophet who runs from the command of God to go to the people of Nineveh. In chapter 1, we see he's on a boat going to Tarshish, and he is eventually thrown into this great sea and absorbed by this great fish. And we see that at the end of chapter 1, this group of, of mariners are saved by God from destruction and they offer sacrifices and devotion to the Lord. They see God's mercy in chapter 1 as, as relenting in the storm. In chapter 2, we see that God goes to work on Jonah's heart and takes this wayward prophet in his heart and causes him to kind of reorientate himself and put him back going north. And he has this great prayer, this poem of expressing, I was running, I was lost, I was dying, I was in the sea, I was being engulfed, and yet your word, your truth, your temple came to my mind, and and you brought me back. And so he comes out of the fish, and he's on dry land, and he makes his way to Nineveh, which is where we were at last time, chapter 3. We saw that Jonah went into this massive city, this this three days journey city, he's about a day in, he preaches this short message of 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed and the whole town just repents and changes, turns away from their sinful ways. They, they're putting sackcloth on animals, they're doing wild stuff, just trying to, to maybe get this God to relent from what Jonah said he would do. And then we see in verse 10 of chapter 3 that that's exactly what God did. He, he relents from this disaster He turns away from it. He doesn't do it. And that's where we start today in Jonah 
chapter 4. So the big picture today that I want you to see is that we're going to see that God's merciful plan supersedes our own will. And being devoted to God's will is what will give God the most glory. So that's where we're going. Let's see how we get there. So if you join me in Jonah chapter 4, just looking beginning at verse 1, says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So again, the it in verse 1 is this massive repentance of the Ninevite people and God's relenting from fulfilling Jonah's message of condemnation. So things are not going Jonah's way, and it says here he's exceedingly angry. We see that he's exceedingly, and he was angry. Literally, he was hot. The word for that anger is hot. So he's hot under the collar. He's mad. He's hot. It's not maybe the response you would expect from a prophet, or maybe it is if you know this prophet. At least this prophet doesn't always do what you would expect. I think he's making a career of doing the opposite. But in this short window, we do see the opposite. We see that that God has heard the cries of the Ninevite people and has turned away. And this truth, what Jonah is seeing unfold in his eyes, is this, this people that he expected to be condemned is now saved from destruction. And with everything crumbling around Jonah, he turns to the Lord. Maybe the first smart thing he's ever done is turn to the Lord in his anger. And he, and he speaks to the Lord, and, and we, we get what's a fascinating answer to a question that we've had all the way from chapter 1. Why did Jonah run? Why did Jonah leave the Lord? Well, look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So, hello, now we know what is the reason that Jonah ran. We had guesses, we didn't know, but now we see that there's this conversation that Jonah and God have sometime before or after verse 1 that we we don't really understand until chapter 4. And we see that the reason that Jonah is making haste to run from God is because he knows God's character. He knows the Ezekiel, or excuse me, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the original quoting of this, the Lord is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness or steadfastness. That, that phraseology that he's using is verse 2 started all the way back in Exodus 34, and it's a, it's a phrase used to try and capture the essence of God throughout the whole Old Testament. So he's like, I know it. I know who you are, and I know what you can and will probably do, and it makes me mad. He says you have unrelenting love, steadfast love. If you're reading different versions, it might say faithful love. Or I used to read a NASB, loving kindness. It's this idea of like trying to smash this word together that is God's love that is pursuant of us. It's steadfast. It's consistent. It's constant. It's unchanging. He says, I know that's who you are. And I don't want it for these people. And I'm mad about it. How mad is he? I'm so mad at God's character that I want to die. Verse 3, therefore, therefore, so because you are that way, therefore, now, Lord, please take my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. Such strong words from a prophet connected directly to the character of God. Because of your nature, God, because of who you are, I want to cease 
living. I'm not happy about this. And understand, this isn't, this isn't despair. Okay, this is not despair. We can all be crushed by life. By life, We have all despaired. There are parts of our lives that, aren't, that don't go our way. It's not fun. Life is hard. And maybe you, you could be like Elijah. If you remember Elijah uh, in chapter 19, he, he had just finished defeating all of these Baals. Well, now Queen Jezebel wants him dead, and he's on the run. And he goes from this mountaintop experience of seeing God destroy the Baals to now in 19 verse 4 where he says that he asked the Lord, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. That was despair. This is not. Jonah is not despairing. Jonah is angry, and he's mad at God for the way that he has treated the Ninevites. This is a raging anger. Uh, James Boyce says about Jonah in this section, Jonah should have perished miserably inside the great fish. He had renounced God. It would have been proper if God had renounced him. Yet God showed him great mercy, first in bringing him to repentance and then saving him and recommissioning him to preach in Nineveh. Jonah had certainly experienced mercy at the hand of God. But there was a long walk across the desert, and man's memory is short. Jonah had forgotten God's mercy and was therefore ill-prepared to appreciate it when God showed the same mercy to the Ninevites. So now Jonah is demanding that God would do his will. He's saying, God, take my life. Who's submitting to who here? God, you're not giving me my way, so now I want you to take my life. Do for me. Do it all. This is my will. There's a great lesson here, I think, in how we approach our life and how we approach God. The two ideas are, one, God's sovereign plan in our life and how we approach God in prayer. So we don't dictate to God how our lives should go. If our prayers are in the idea of, God, you owe me this. Or, God, how could you do this to me? To me! How could you do this to me? That is not the humility required when we, when we come before God. Now, humility is not the same as confidence. Let me read you from Hebrews chapter 4.16, which says this, Let us then draw with confidence nearer to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is not that. We have confidence that we can come to the Lord in boldness, praying prayers to God, but humility is what Jonah lacked. Jonah wanted his will to be done. He wanted his anger to be subdued by God's wrath. And instead of coming humbly, he comes arrogantly saying, I know better as to what you should have done to this people. I think a good parallel to this might be Job. Job was in the same boat. Job had questions. Job's life didn't shake out the way he wanted it to. He lost all of his money, all of his stuff, all of his children. And, and he's got questions. And as you read Jonah, you see, or excuse me, Job, um, he just continues to, to kind of spiral out of control until basically he says, God, I, I, I need to have an audience with you. You need to, you need to explain yourself to me. And God, you know, Elihu shows up and says, that's ridiculous. And then God shows up and asks him like four chapters with the questions that are like, who are you, dude? Were you there when I built the, when I built the world? Like, who are you to ask me as to how, how you should live your life? And then Job, all he can say at the end is verse 42 too. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or Isaiah 55, for my thoughts, this is God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So we see that, that God is pretty clear in saying, I know what I'm doing. So calm down, Jonah. Because that's what he says. Look at this. This is just verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So God graciously answers Jonah. The more you know your Bible, the more you know God. And this just should knock you off your feet. Job never got the answer he wanted. There are tons of prophets or people that didn't get the answers that they wanted. We've had prayers that we didn't get answered that we wanted. We came a lot more humbly than Jonah. But this petulant child of a prophet gets God to say, what, what, do you do well to be angry at this? What a merciful God we serve, don't we? And boy, we need a God that's merciful because I don't need a lot of stuff in my life to flip that Jonah switch. I can get hot about pretty much anything. And I need a God that's merciful, like God is merciful to Jonah. And not only does God respond and answer him and say, calm down. I mean, I was trying to think of, like, like what's, a, what's, a, what's the vernacular that you would say? To, I don't you mad, bro? I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, it's just like this, like, calm down, Jonah. Like, why are you, you shouldn't be mad. But not only does God respond, but then he sets out to show Jonah what mercy and sovereignty look like. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This might seem confusing to you, as it was to me a little bit, at least a little bit, like they repented. So so what exactly is he looking for here? What, what What is he posting up the tent for? What is he watching to see happen? Well, it seemed that he would be holding out hope that the message of his destruction would still come to pass. So obviously his anger has not subsided from God's call to him. So he does a couple of things. It says here he went out to the east of the city and he made a booth. Both of those things matter to the story because we're going to go on here in a minute to see um, why it matters. The east side of the city is the side where the sun comes up. This is the Middle East. And then there's a booth involved, which is basically, the idea of a booth is just, think of it like, a, a lean-to, a, a makeshift tent built in the wilderness. He took some sticks and twigs and who knows what, and you know, made a little booth to try and get out of the hot Middle Eastern sun. And he's sitting here waiting for the fireworks to take off. But God ends up appointing something. Look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, first things first, what does this word appointed or to appoint means? It means to constitute, to ordain, or to fix by word, order, or decision. So God says by a word with complete confidence and power as the creator of the universe that a plant would supernaturally grow into existence and make shade for Jonah. That's what God did. He appointed a plant to grow in the Middle East in one day big enough to create better shade than the the shanty he built. So this is a supernatural thing. It's not some ordinary run-of-the-mill creation thing. This This is a supernatural act of mercy by God for Jonah. And the shade does a couple of things. It creates shade initially, but it also says here to save him from his discomfort. And if you are, um, you might even have a version or translation that says to, to save him from his 
evil. So the idea here is that he's trying to shade him, to show him his mercy, so that his heart would be softened to the evil he is feeling towards this people. So it is shade, but it's more than shade. He's throwing shade on the Ninevites, and he wants God, God wants him to change this way. And what's interesting is that he doesn't see God's mercifulness, but he does get really happy. What does he see? He is exceedingly glad over the plant, it says. Now, not over God's providence, not over God's appointing of this, this supernatural plant. He's not even uh, excited about the power of the plant, but he's just excited about the plant, the whatever it was that grew up. He's not thankful to God. He's not thankful for the shade. He loves this plant. And it's the polar opposite of how he was towards the Ninevites. He was exceedingly angry about the Ninevites receiving a stay of execution, but he's exceedingly glad about some plant. So we're seeing what, what, what we're starting to see what God will say to him in force at the end of the chapter, but we're seeing that Jonah's priorities are out of whack. He's twisted in his understanding of reality. And in verse 7, we see the second of, of God's appointments. Look at verse 7 with me. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. So again, it's the second of his God's divine appointments, this, this decree, I'm going to send a worm. So this wasn't an accident, not that there are any accidents, but the author Jonah goes out of his way to make sure we're clear it is God who sent this worm to destroy this plant. And the next thing that God appoints is verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. So now we see why it mattered that Jonah told us that he set up shop in the east. Because now he's in the east where the sun comes up, where it's hot all the time. He has no booth, no shade of any kind, and God's doing it all. God is basically poking and prodding Jonah. He's putting on this master class in God's mercy to try and show him your priorities are out of whack. Your, everything is out of whack. You like the wrong stuff. And we have to just stop for a moment and say, how do we think about God's mercy? How do we understand God's mercy in our lives? Do we see God's plan for our life as merciful appointments, poking and prodding us into the path of righteousness? Because no one's sitting here saying that, that it's good. Like, no one wants to sit in the Middle Eastern sun and bake. I was at the Morningside football game yesterday, and as you can see, I went straight, you know, lobster. That was like, the, I mean, that wasn't even the Middle East. That was like some bleachers. I can't imagine how hot Jonah was. But, it, but, but again, God's saying, I'm, I'm showing you mercy, and you're not getting it. Or is he? So that, that's the question. Does Jonah get the message? Now, we've got this... This plant that grew up, this plant that died, this, this scorching heat, this, this feeling of faintness. He's, he's struggling with all of this heat. And the question is, did he get the message? Well, the second half of verse 8 will tell us that is a resounding no. The second half of verse 8. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And that's it. So now we see that Jonah is more upset about his physical condition, right? It's maybe He's maybe moved away from the Ninevites a little bit. Now he's just very uncomfortable and he's faint and he's just 
The whole thing has got them. I'm done. Okay, I'm, you didn't smite the people. You took away my plan. I'm done. Like, I, I want to be done. And God, knowing the hearts of all men, gets, gets to the question at the beginning of verse 9 where he says, but God said to Jonah, again, jo- God said to Jonah, he continues to speak mercifully to this ridiculous prophet, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? So now he's asking, now he's, he's getting more focused. He's saying, do you do well to be mad about the plant? It's one thing to be mad about the, the Ninevites, but I, why are you mad about the plant? And Jonah's response is exactly what you would expect. At the end of verse 9, he says, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Message not received. And I think this sets up God's laying out exactly how he thinks about the Ninevites and how Jonah should have seen the events that lay before him. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So that's the message. What a message indeed. Should God not care for this people? Do they not have more value than this plant? And there's this idea where it says that, that, that these people do not know their right hand from their left. It's this moral assessment of this people. I mean, remember to chapter 3. They were putting sackcloth on animals. Like, they're just, they're groping in the dark to try and figure out how to, to, to prevent this God that they don't know from taking them out of existence. So let's not eat anything. Let's not drink anything. Don't feed the cattle. Don't water the cattle. Everybody's wearing sackcloth. Maybe we'll be okay. That's, that's what happens. And God says... Would I, should I not be gracious? These guys heard four Hebrew words, and they're trying to change everything. You're an Israelite, dude. You, you know me so well. You quoted Exodus 34 just a few minutes ago about my character. You know me. You should know better than this. Wake up is what he's saying. Wake up. And again, think about Jonah's life. and what, what I mean, just in these four chapters, what... He should have seen the mercy that he isn't showing the Ninevites. And we know that the, the people of Assyria didn't fully turn to, to Yahweh. We know that. This is just some groping in the dark. But again, too much is given, much is required. They received a little bit of God's revelation and they changed. Noah knew, Noah, Jonah knew all of the scriptures and he couldn't figure out that God is merciful. He didn't want to admit to it. So, what does this say about Jonah? or to us as hearers of this word, as, as New Testament believers who, as specifically this church, who do know your Bibles, what does this say to us? Well, that's, that's where it ends. Like, we don't, get, we don't get the end. Did Jonah ever get it? We don't know. And, and I think that's important because, again, the author of Jonah, the book of Jonah, who is Jonah, um, found it more important to, to leave it this way to cause us to think than to put a little bow on it. So, again, Jonah is a prophet writing to presumably Israel who are not repenting and know all of God's word, right? They're they're the people of Israel. They're the ones who have the oracles of God. They know God. God is supposed to be their God. And he's saying, look at what the Ninevites did. Look how Jonah was. Where where do you want to be? And that's how he ends the letter, the prophecy, the word, the book. 
So this leads us to try and make sense of what we're seeing. And so to keep it simple, because I should have been some sort of engineer, I really like structure, I'm going to give you three points based on the three paragraphs of this, of this, this chapter. So the three points are this. One, God is merciful. Two, God's will will be done, not ours. And three, the nations and, the enemy, and our enemies need to be in view as we think, as we close. So first, God is merciful. So there's no understanding of mercy apart from how God's mercy is on us. If we don't understand mercy, if we don't understand that God is merciful. No one attribute in this whole book is more clearly on display than God's mercy. Think about what we've seen. The mariners in chapter 1. Jonah himself in chapter 2. The Ninevites in chapter 3. And then Jonah again in chapter 4. It's all about God's mercy and showing himself merciful. Every chapter oozes and pours out this picture of God's mercy on all these different types of people. Pagan mariners, a wayward prophet, pagan Assyrians who will eventually be the nation in 100 years that will come and take Israel away. And then Jonah again, the same prophet. So I guess I should define the word merciful. I'm going to keep saying it. Merciful is having or exercising mercy, but compassionate, tender, disposed to pity offenders and to forgive their offenses. Unwilling to punish for injuries. And then the Webster's Dictionary says, applied appropriately to the supreme being or God. So for there to be a need of mercy, there has to be judgment. There has to be wrongness rightly applied for someone to receive mercy. I think too often we hear mercy and we think it's deserved. Like God owes us mercy. He clearly does not. That's that's why the Bible makes such a big deal about displaying God's mercy to us. Those of us who are paying attention are realizing that God doesn't have to be merciful because we have offended God. So I would say maybe the opposite of a sinner is someone who is righteous. And listen to what what worldly righteousness will get you in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And it's summed up in verse 23 of the same chapter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And culminated in in chapter 6, he goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. So the payment... For this sin, this lack of righteousness is one thing, and that is death. Death is to be paid for sin. We don't want to be like Jonah, blind to our need for mercy. God mercifully offers salvation for our sins through Jesus Christ. And not only does he save us from our sin, mercifully, I might add, but he also gives us his righteousness. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Christ. I'm just going to take the pronouns out. 
For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does Christ pay for our sins through his death and atonement on the cross by his blood, but part of this salvation is a transferring of righteousness to us on his behalf. Christ takes our sin, we take his righteousness. We get salvation and the righteousness that makes us opposite of what we read in Romans 3.10. So now, though we are unrighteous because of Christ's righteousness, the Lord sees us as righteous. This is what salvation offers. This is what Christ's death on the cross offers. Don't wait. Put your trust in Christ alone today for the merciful salvation that only he can offer And he will also mercifully transfer his righteousness to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, on top of God's mercy being on display, I think we can also see that it is God's will and not our will that comes to pass. If you were here last week, I know Pastor covered the Lord's Prayer while many of us were at retreat. Or if you grew up in certain denominations, I grew up Lutheran, so I recited the Lord's Prayer every week. You know it, that line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's actually Matthew 6.10, or if you say the Lord's Prayer, it's the second line. But do you see, did you see that how the root of Jonah's anger is that his will is not being done by God? Jonah did not want to bow the knee to God in God's plan for the Ninevites, or even the plant. He wasn't thrilled about either. He wanted the plant to stay big and full, and he wanted the Ninevites to be destroyed. And functionally, we might say things like the Lord's Prayer, but the question is, do we live in submission to God's will? Jonah is a bright and shining example of what not to do. If the theme of God's mercy wasn't so fully on display in this book, you would expect God's discipline to come swiftly on Jonah for how he's speaking to him. But again, God chose to show mercy. And in this, there's another great great lesson for us. God does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. But he does it mercifully. And here's the other thing. It won't always fit neatly into the categories we want. We don't know why God does what he does all the time. We don't know why he saved the Ninevites just to have them march in and take Israel 100 years later. On paper, you would think, I don't get that. I might question that. And I bet there are hundreds of things in your life where you would say the same thing. You would say, I don't know why I had to go through that. I don't know why I had to deal with that. I don't know why this is happening to me. Does being a believer mean nothing to you, God? And and again, we're all good Christian people, so none of us say it. But if you're like me, you live it. You think it. You act tough one Sunday a month, then you go back to living regular. So we're all there. And it's easy to do. And, and again, this is not a Christian cop-out, right? It's, it's not a, a cop-out to say, well, God's will will be done, so... Uh. Like, it is a divine truth that we can hang our hats and our lives on. That God is sovereign and rules over this universe. This isn't so what, but it's trusting that God has a plan. And he's bringing that pa- pa- plan to pass. 
He says it all over the Bible if you know what you're looking for. Think again, I referenced Job, and we just, by God's providence, saying, Blessed be your name today. And there's these, just these texts in the book of Job that we, we see again and again. As I mentioned before, Job was this man who lost everything because, the, because God allowed Satan to walk out and take everything. And though Job was not involved in this conversation with God and the devil about, about his testing, Jonah starts really well. And after everything happens, in verse 21 of verse 1, he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he'll go on to say in answering his wife in chapter 2, Shall we? Oh, this is interesting. I didn't even see this. Um, Jonah's, or Jonah, Job. Too many J names for this guy. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. So there's this theme again of being angry and, and asking God for death. But Job gives the right answer. He says, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, Jonah did not sin with his lips. So we see these two parallels running with Job and Jonah. This Job who loses everything. And you might even argue maybe feels a little bit more illegitimate. But Jonah, Job, says, I will trust in the Lord in all things and know that what he does is good. And we've got Jonah who sees a merciful act by a merciful God to a people that didn't deserve it. And he says, this isn't fair. So Job got it and he trusted it. So we need to humbly submit to this merciful God of the universe knowing that he knows what's best and that he can handle anything that comes our way. Two other texts that I would encourage you to memorize if you have the time. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those whom walk uprightly. So the great preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon said, That means that if there's any good thing that you are to have, or any good thing you shouldn't have because it's right for you, God is doing it. He will not withhold good things from you. Think about Jonah. Jonah is a test case for this. Jonah is receiving good things. He's receiving mercy from God in the belly of a fish. And now he's receiving mercy from God through the plant and through God mercifully saying, do you do well to be angry? By rights, God could have struck him where he stood for that kind of attitude. He was a prophet of Yahweh. And God says, do you do well? So God is showing him mercy. And no good thing. And so it was a good thing for, for Jonah to lose the plant. Because the good thing was God wanted him to be on the side of God in mercy. So we should be thinking in ourselves, we don't get to define good. Good to me, good to, the Amer good, good to me is the American dream. Right? Healthy kids, lots of cars, big house, good job, fulfilling job. That's the American dream. That's good. And if God doesn't give me that, I'm questioning his goodness. God is the one who defines good. And goodness for God and goodness for Jonah was, I'm going to go to great lengths to show you your sin and your lack of understanding of my character. So in that, God was being good. And then, of course, Romans 8, 28. We know that all for that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So if we let God define good because he knows what is best, everything makes sense. Finally, Jonah gives us a preliminary look 
into what the gospel of Jesus Christ will accomplish. Both in view of the nations, but also in loving our enemies. See, everything was wrong about this mission for Jonah. Everything. The people, the place, the message, the outcome, none of it was what Jonah expected or wanted. But isn't that the message of the gospel according to Christ? That the nations would come, love your enemies. You know, Jesus said radical things about this life. And I don't want to stretch it too far, but we can clearly see that Jonah was originally commissioned to speak to Israel, and now he's speaking to Assyrians, and he seems to not have wanted to be part of that program. They were enemies to him. He didn't want them to be saved from this calamity. He wanted them to be destroyed. But God had other plans. And so I guess our question in application is, how do we see our enemies or the nations? Our church has been known for a long time to love missions. And I would encourage you to continue in that pursuit that we would want to see the nations of the world hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We support many, many missionaries for the size of the church that we are because we, we believe this. We take this seriously. But how about those who are harder to love? Right? I mean, I look around this room. I've been here almost 17 years. I know all of you. And it is very easy for me to want to love all of you. There are people outside of this room that I'm not as shining of an example of that. And I think we could all agree that that is, it's harder to love an enemy or someone that doesn't have your, your good in, in their mind. And, and, and we see Jonah as an example that he didn't love these people. He didn't want these people to repent. He wanted these people to go. And I think too often I'm too quick to say, I'm going to cut that person off because they're a lost cause. And in that, am I any better than Jonah? God's message is for the peoples and the nations of the world. So, yes, we want to support missionary efforts in the Middle East, but I want to be a missionary on the block to my neighbor. My neighbor that doesn't like my kids or whatever. I mean, we've got, you could just make a list, right? So there wasn't much truth given to the Ninevites to Israel's shame. They heard a few words and they were saved. What if, what if our enemies heard just a little bit of, of God's goodness through our words and they too would have the, the, the turning experience that the Ninevites had? God's word is powerful. We sang it this morning. God's word is powerful. So let us turn then by the power of our merciful Christ Jesus and speak the gospel to the nations and to our enemies and let God be glorified by following his will in all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are merciful. God, we need, we need mercy. We need so much of your mercy and grace. God, we are sinners that, like Jonah, often struggle to figure out the message you have for us. But you are, are the merciful, pursuing Father who sent Christ Jesus, as it says in Luke, to seek and save lost souls like us. So first, thank you, God. We, we as one voice as believers, want to thank you for the mercy that you showed us on the cross and that you took sinners like us and gave us a righteousness far beyond what we could even ask or think or deserve. And God, we would ask that you would embolden us to desire to give this message to the nations and to those, to those around us. And also, God, I, I would ask that you would open the eyes of the blind, stir the hearts of the lost. Your promise of Ezekiel still stands, that you will, you are the one that takes out the heart of stone 
It gives a heart of flesh. You are the one who opened the heart of Lydia in Acts 16. Open more hearts. Even in this room, God, I would ask that you would open the hearts of the, of the lost, that they would see Christ and be found. God, thank you for the message of Jonah. Thank you that, that in your divine plan that you would capture this scripture to remind us of your mercy forever. And pour out your grace on us. Give us remembrance of how merciful of a God you truly are. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.